If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It needed over... 500 animal skins to produce each book because the animal skins were treated to produce the parchment that the uh, text of the book was written on. That was Claire Bray talking about the Anglo-Saxons. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. The British Library's Anglo Saxon Kingdoms Art Word War exhibition, has opened in London to rave reviews. Medievalists have been swooning over the gathering together of a wealth of rare, beautiful and valuable manuscripts, books, letters, charters and artefacts from the 5th to the 11th centuries. Dr Claire Bray is the British Library's lead curator for the exhibition and BBC History magazine content director David Musgrove met up with her on the opening day of the exhibition 
to talk through the display. I'm here in the British Library uh, and I'm joined by Claire Bray, the lead curator of the Anglo-Saxon Kingdom's Art, Word and War exhibition, uh, which runs from 19 October to 19 February 2019. I've had a wander around. I was um, uh, treated to the press view just now and it's an amazing thing. So um, congratulations, Claire, for setting up such a fantastic exhibition. Um, the first thing I'd just really like to know is from you, you've been involved in setting this up. Give me a sense of what it is like to hold one of these thousand-year books that, that you've got in the exhibition. What does it feel like? What does it smell like? What is it, what is it like to hold something like that? Well, I've worked here at the British Library for over 20 years now, and I have to say I think the experience of holding a medieval manuscript in your hands, for me anyway, it is just always incredibly exciting and I think that's one of the wonderful things about medieval manuscripts is that they have this amazing ability to transport you back to the world and the characters and events of the past and um, yeah that excitement never goes away for me so that's what it feels like emotionally but the 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 manuscripts in the exhibition are, uh, as you've seen, incredibly different in shape and size. Um, the majority of the manuscripts are books, um, but we also have quite a lot of single sheet documents in the exhibition. You'll have seen we've got the earliest surviving charter that was written in England in the 7th century and the earliest uh, surviving original letter from right at the beginning of the 8th century. But the, the books, some of them I can hold in one hand, the St Cuthbert Gospel that the library acquired in 2012 following our really big £9 million um, fundraising campaign. It contains just the Gospel of John. It was made at the beginning of the 8th century and it is famous because it is the earliest intact European book. It's got a wonderful dark red decorated goatskin leather binding. Um, and yeah, as I say, I can hold it in one hand. Um, and we are displaying it just next to Codex Amiatinus, which is a giant manuscript of the whole Bible that was written just around the same time as the St Cuthbert Gospel in the early 8th century and in the same place at Wearmouth Jarrow, which was Bede's monastery. And, and at that time, most uh, biblical manuscripts circulated as gospel books or as Psalters. It's really unusual to have a, a whole Bible, but Chelfrith, who was the uh, abbot at Wearmouth Jarrow, um, commissioned the production of three giant Bibles. One is, one is lost. Uh, one, we have a, a few leaves remaining, which are here in the British Library. And the other one, survives intact as Codex Amiatinus. And it, it is, as you've seen, it is a giant. It has over a thousand parchment leaves, so over 2,000 pages um, of text. The spine of the book is over a foot thick to accommodate the whole text of the Bible. And it was, as I say, made in Northumbria, beginning of the 8th century, taken to Italy as a gift for the Pope and uh, ended up in Tuscany and it has never been back to England um, uh, in over 1,300 years. So we're 
absolutely thrilled to have it in the exhibition. And, I mean, you're, you're right, that is a, a behemoth of a book. I was amazed <laughs> at how, how big it is. Um, we'll come back to the, okay. to the Codex in a bit, if you don't mind. Yeah. But um, um, So uh, give, give me a sense of uh, how difficult it is to produce an exhibition like this. You've got, uh, I don't know, how many, how many artefacts and objects? There's 180 you... objects okay. altogether, yeah. And they've come from all over the place. So, you know, you've got the, the Codex Amitinus, which has come from Italy and yeah. which presumably was quite a difficult thing to secure. So... Yeah. Give me a sense of... It must be extraordinarily difficult to pull together a collection like this. So 80 of the exhibits in the show um, are drawn from the British Library's own collections uh, and the library has, as perhaps you might expect, the greatest collection of Anglo-Saxon manuscripts that survives and many real treasures such as the Lindisfarne, Gospels, illuminated manuscript made around 700 at Lindisfarne, um, and the unique manuscript of Beowulf, and many, many other treasures. So, um, the, I suppose that's the core of the exhibition, being able to to draw on the library's own collections. That's a handy starting point. (laughs) But then uh, the other 100 objects in the exhibition, which include archaeological um, discoveries as well as as other manuscripts, are um, borrowed from 25 different lenders from um, across the UK and um, from many lenders in... um, uh, well, in Ireland and continental Europe, and we have one loan of two manuscripts has come from uh, New York as well. So, yeah, it's a very uh, big task pulling together um, an exhibition like this, but I think one of the uh, most exciting parts is going um, to visit lenders and persuading them to um, to lend, or in, this, in the case of this exhibition, persuading them to lend either their greatest uh, treasure or, you know, some of their greatest treasures. Um, And I think with this exhibition, uh, once I'd started working on it a bit and a few um, lenders had committed major things, then other lenders started to see that this really was going to be this once-in-a-generation exhibition and that this was an opportunity to lend their collection items to a show which, you know, just wasn't going to uh, be seen again for a very, very long time. So um, so, so you've had to um, uh, pull on a network of contacts um, around around the world to, to get these um, uh, yeah. this material. So, yeah, I mean, well, some were you know, approaching libraries and collections where I already knew um, curators or librarians and others were approaching institutions, you know, where I didn't um, know the uh, know the staff. But so, yeah, trying to explain what the exhibition was about, what we were trying to achieve was, was really key. And in a way, that, that pulls on one of the themes within the exhibition for me, I think, and, and hopefully for you, is that it's it's explaining that the Anglo-Saxons operated within an international context and weren't just a, an isolated bunch of people yeah. on this on this small island. So yeah, of course, that. I think. I mean, I think all societies interact with the societies around them. and But that is something that we did want to show very much. We want, in the exhibition, uh, we want visitors to to encounter the original 
evidence for the the history and the literature and art of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. But to really see that through that evidence that um, the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms were deeply connected with Ireland and with continental Europe, both the you know, the near continent stretching to Scandinavia, down to Italy and Rome and the Mediterranean, um, through, well, through migration initially, because clearly the uh, Germanic-speaking um, Anglo-Saxon peoples that came to um, to Britain came from the continent, but there was... Um, travel, uh, you know, religion through contacts with uh, Rome, the initial mission in 597 from from Rome to Kent and the um, also missionaries coming, uh, Irish missionaries coming from the Irish-founded monastery on Iona um, over to Northumbria. Um, and th- those those missions came in one direction, but they were just the start of, you know, long-term um, contacts with with both Ireland and with, with Italy and Rome. There was a lot of trade. There were political contacts, the Viking invasions, the conquest of Canutes in uh, 1016, and, of course, the conquest of um, William of Normandy in 1066. So there were all sorts of connections. And I, I think... Um, one of the other key things is the role of manuscripts themselves and the people who produced them in, you know, those exchanges. So manuscripts are obviously um, portable objects. And as I've already said, one of the exciting things about the exhibition is bringing back manuscripts which have travelled to other parts of Europe, bringing them back um, to Britain um, for display in this exhibition, sometimes for the first time. Um, but manuscripts moved. We have manuscripts going in, in the exhibition that went to France and um, Francia and from Francia back to England. And there's evidence of um, artists and scribes being itinerant and moving around as well. So it was, a, you know, it was an interconnected world. Yeah, so there was a lot of sharing of ideas, and and you can see that through the yeah. through some of the manuscripts. Um, I wonder if you can if you can help us a bit there, because um, most most people we don't have the uh, the paleographical or the linguistic ability to be able to um, read the old English or the yeah. Latin that those that these fantastic texts um, show. So how sh- how should we? understand them you know short of going on a on an old english course how how should we you know take something from from looking at these documents well i think many of them are just incredible works of art um which you know it's very uh they're spectacular um to look at and the artistry of the um say the manuscripts in the um section on the golden age of um, Northumbria show very clearly artistic connections both with Irish artistic traditions and with continental and Italian Roman uh, ways of decorating manuscripts but we've tried in the in the exhibition to um, translate key passages and to give people ways into the um, into the manuscripts um, in the literary section you can listen to um, extracts or, um, from the unique manuscript of 
Beowulf, the greatest literary relic of uh, the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. You can listen um, to extracts being read in Old English and being read in translation, and also for the, the Sermo Lupi, the Sermon of the Wolf of, of Wolfstan later in the exhibition. But I think, um, yeah, the, those connections, they do run all the way through the exhibition, and it is, it is, it is definitely a key theme. And right at the end of the exhibition, we have um, three psalters, which are like a coda, really, and a grand finale. The first is the Utrecht Psalter, so-called because it's now uh, held in Utrecht University Library. But it was made um, in Francia in the first half of the ninth century, and it contains the whole book of the Psalms, and it is full of incredibly lively line drawings illustrating what is going on in the Psalms, and it was a new way of illustrating um, illustrating the Psalter. And, it, and the drawings are in sort of strips, like a, like a strip cartoon. So this Frankish manuscript was brought to um, England and was in Canterbury uh, by about 1000 AD. And in the first half of the 11th century, um, a copy of it was made based on this model, a different script was used, and the style of the drawings reflects 11th century Anglo-Saxon style of drawings, but the layout of the text and um, the what is depicted in these strip cartoon-like drawings is... Um, is reproduced. So you see very directly, I think, between those two manuscripts, the uh, connections and influence of this Frankish manuscript on what has been done in Canterbury in um, in the 11th century. And then the third manuscript of this trio is the Eadwina Psalter, which is on loan to us from Trinity College in Cambridge, which is a, an even bigger manuscript than the other two and um, in that manuscript, they le- changed the layout of the text. So it still reproduces the, uh, the design of the drawings, but it's differently laid out. And instead of just having one Latin translation of the Psalms, it has the three different Latin versions of the Psalms. And between the lines of one of those Latin translations is an Anglo-Norman French um, translation of the Latin um, the Latin Psalms, reflecting the new reality of the Norman conquest. And and between the lines of one of the other Latin translations of the Psalms is a translation into English, showing, you know, this manuscript was was made in about 1150 and it shows the continued use of English after the Norman conquest and um, that the origins of the English language and the continue the continuation of its use is one of the the key themes of the the exhibition and you know English language is I think the the greatest legacy of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. And I, I agree it was stunning to see those those three psalters together and I, I would imagine that it's the first time for the, the first two have been uh, together since their Canterbury days for for quite a I while. I think there was one exhibition on the on the continent when they were actually displayed together, but the Utrecht Psalter um, uh, stayed in England until the early modern period um, and then made its way to the Netherlands, um, and but hasn't been displayed in an exhibition in Britain. Um, before and hasn't been back to Britain for several hundred years. So it's certainly the first opportunity to see those 
three manuscripts together as um, a trio in Britain. The, the other aspect to the um, to the exhibition that I was interested in was the the, sort of the multimedia sense in a way, in that you've got the, a, a fabulous bit where we've got some metal mounts uh, at the start of the exhibition, which uh, have um, uh, artistry which is very similar to the uh, Book of Durrow, which right. you showed, and and so the, it's not just that the art is confined to these manuscripts. It's actually you've you've got other objects which show the art, the Ruffwell Cross, right. for instance. So, um, can you tell us a little bit about how the art crossed between those boundaries. Yeah. So we were very keen with the sort of archaeolo- archaeological objects um, that we have in the exhibition. Partly, I think, to showcase new um, discoveries that have um, been made, um, you know, in the 21st century. Things like the Staffordshire Horde and the and the Litchfield Angel and the Windfarthing Pendant, but also to yeah use um, these objects, which you know show unbelievably sophisticated craftsmanship. Um, and to show the links between the the motifs on the metalwork and the motifs in the manuscripts. And um, as I was just saying, uh, manuscripts are portable, but metalwork is incredibly portable. They tend to be um, smaller objects. And um, the Book of Durrow is closely related to um, some of the metalwork. You mentioned those... um, two mounts from Hockwold um, have very similar decoration on them. And, of course, in the exhibition we have the Sutton Hoo um, gold belt buckle, which the British Museum has very generously lent to us. And there are the, um, the decoration on the gold belt buckle from Sutton Hoo is very similar to some of the, the decoration uh, in the Book of Durrow, so much so that um, in the past it was thought that the Book of Durrow was probably a Northumbrian manuscript, but now it's it's thought that actually the similarities reflect the portability of metalwork and there is other evidence from an inscription that suggests that the Book of Durrow was actually in a Colombian monastery, Columban monastery from a very early date and was probably either produced at um, the monastery of Durrow in Central Ireland or that it reached there from the Irish-founded monastery of Iona off the west coast of Ireland, perhaps reaching Durrow via Kells. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. 
This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. I, I said that I want to talk a bit more about the Codex. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> as I said, I was amazed at just the, the sheer size of that thing. Um, can you give us a sense about what was happening in Jarrow, Weirmouth at the start of the 8th century for that to even be considered to be a thing that was that was created. I mean, you, you would kind of imagine that, you know, it's the Dark Ages, people used to talk uh, talk about that, up there in the, in the, in the northeast. Um, what was going on in that, in those yeah. twin monasteries to, yeah, I think for that artistic of, I think treatment. a lot of people do think of this period as the Dark Ages and one of the things that we are really trying to show is the sophistication of the artistry and intellectual life and literary and political culture of the period. Um, but up at Weirmouth Jarrow, I mean, these were two monasteries that were founded in the um, in the seventh century, and following their um, foundation, Benedict Biscop went to um, Italy and um, brought back many books um, to Weirmouth Jarrow and built up there an incredible library. And Weirmouth Jarrow was an incredibly important intellectual centre, um, as was the Canterbury School, which was founded by um, Archbishop Theodore and Abbot Hadrian um, at Canterbury. And so they, these two centres were incredibly important. And, of course, Weirmouth Jarrow was... Bede's monastery, uh, Bede was teaching and working and writing there and yeah, drawing on this incredible library that had, had been built up. And I think it's also important with Codex Amiotimus just to think about um, the sort of practical resources that were required to produce it because um, Abbot Chalfrith commissioned the production of three giant Bibles, and um, they have over a thousand leaves in each one, so over two thousand pages of text, and each leaf is half of a bifolium, so it needed over five hundred animal skins to produce each book, because the animal skins were treated to produce the parchment that the uh, text of the book was written on. So that's fifteen hundred animals. That, uh, whose skins need to be prepared and treated to make the parchment to make the books. Um, and then the, you know, the pages have to be ruled and the you know, teams of scribes have to set to work um, copying um, 
copying the text of the Bible. So it really was a, you know, a very, very complicated and, you know, a process and a, a big undertaking for, for the monastery to produce these three books. And one was for Wearmouth, one was for Jarrow, and the third one, Codex Amiatinus, was the one that was taken to Italy and that we are so excited to welcome back in the exhibition. I mean, that's phenomenal, the way you describe it, the, the amount of work that would have to come to it. Why, why would you create such a, a massive tome like that? What, 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 is, that is it just a glory in, in, in God, or why, why so big? Well, I'm sure they were aware that they were this sort of intellectual powerhouse at, uh, up at Wearmouth Jarrow. And, I mean, most biblical manuscripts circulated as as gospel books or just as Psalter. So it was very unusual to have manuscripts um, of the of the whole Bible. And uh, yeah, I think it reflects the, as I say, the importance of that centre where Mountain Jarrow. And you know, they're sending quite a powerful message to the Pope. I think um, it's a pretty uh, amazing present to to receive. Although Abbot Chelfrith took took the the Bible uh, himself with a large party of monks, but he sadly died en route in Burgundy. Um, but we know from other sources that um, the Bible does seem to have reached Rome, but then it was later in uh, the monastery of Monte Amiata in Tuscany and stayed uh, there till the monastery was suppressed in the 18th century and it was at that point that it made its way to the Lorenziana Library in Florence, which is its home today and which had so generously agreed to lend it to us. Well, we, should, we should all be grateful to them for that. Um, we, so we don't know what the Pope thought about the uh, gifts. Um, Sadly not. That's a shame, isn't <laughs> it? must it? have been impressed. <laughs> The, the poster for the um, for the exhibition on the on the wall um, highlights that it's six hundred years of uh, of history that we're talking about. So that's a long old time. Um, do you think that the uh, that it's it's reasonable to talk about this period in, as a as a as a cohesive thing as the Anglo-Saxon period? I mean, that's just you know historical nomenclature, isn't it? But is there is there continuity in the artistic styles um, through the period that that makes it? Seems sensible. The artistic styles change an awful lot. I mean, it is an incredibly long period, and I, I often think about that—the um, the sort of telescoping of time that tends to happen when you look back. And you know, these six hundred years of history were a very long time in a period. Of, there was a lot of continuity, but there was an awful lot of change. And you know, six hundred years is from like now, stretching back to the time of Henry V. You know, and it it's, it really, really was a, a hugely long time. You know, and starts off with these Germanic groups settling and forming their new communities, and then gradually, um, there's a large number of small kingdoms um, being established, which then in turn gradually coalesce into larger uh, kingdoms and Northumbria or Kent is powerful, Northumbria becomes more powerful and then Mercia under King Offa and then of course the West Saxons under Alfred and, um, and Athelstan and Alfred starts off his reign as King of the West Saxons but during his, uh, his very powerful reign he... Uh, it turns into the king of the Anglo-Saxons and uh, Athelstan, his grandson, um, 
consolidates that role as king of the Anglo-Saxons, but in, in some of his charters, you know, he's called king of Britain. Um, and, so, and then you get a, a shift later on, um, it moves from being king of the Anglo-Saxons to being king of the English and king of England, and that consolidation of the kingdom of England um, under King Edgar, whose reign saw... Um, a lot of reform in the church, which in turn bolstered his own authority and the unity of his um, kingdom was incredibly important. But then the Kingdom of England was was conquered by Canute of Denmark in 1016. It's the anniversary today, actually, of that, of that battle. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and then, you know, you've got the rest of the 11th century leading up to the... Um, the conquest by William of Normandy in 1066. So, yeah, it's a it's an evolving picture, changing picture all the way through. But I hope that the exhibition conveys that uh, that change to visitors. And you and you finish uh, with the Doomsday Book, 1086. Yes, well, it's our oldest public record Doomsday Book, and uh, you know I think it's really f- famous uh, with the public for being this sort of monument to uh, the control and efficiency of the Normans, but actually Doomsday Book or the survey that underlay Doomsday Book was only possible because of the quite developed structures of organising England that had been developed uh, in the late Anglo-Saxon period. So the the, the shires, the counties emerged uh, in the tenth, late 10th century and those the boundaries of those shire counties existed until local re- government reorganisation of um, 1974. So they had a very long life and those counties and their subdivisions of the hundreds or the, the wapentakes were the structures that used for um, for tax collection and for administration of justice. But it, because it was because they were in place that the doomsday commissioners were able to draw on the Geld records, the land tax records that the tax collection system had generated and were able to go around the country and gather um, supplementary information that is at the heart of Doomsday Book. And and Doomsday Book really is a a mine of information about the organisation and the wealth of late Anglo-Saxon England. And it's... You know, it is that organisation and wealth that made Anglo-Saxon England so attractive to um, to Danish invaders earlier in the 11th century and and to the Normans in 1066. It was a it was an attractive country to go and try and conquer. The artistic consequence of 1066 was, as, as we talked a little bit earlier, the Bayer tapestry was you know came out of that. Um, Forgive me if I missed it, but you didn't have much on the tapestry in the exhibition. No. Was that big? Clearly, it's a tapestry. It's in yeah. Bayer at the moment. And um, was that because you're holding powder for something for when uh, when it possibly comes over in a few years, or, or did it not quite fit into the narrative you were looking at? Um, well, I don't know whether you noticed there was a graphic in the exhibition of um, of uh, the battles uh, of Hastings depicted in the the Bayer tapestry to complement the. Uh, couple of the manuscripts on display which are looking back to uh, what has happened in um, in 1066 but uh, yes I think the the negotiations over the the loan of the bio tapestry are, 
are still ongoing, as I understand it. Uh, and two more quick ones. Uh, what's your what's your the, your favourite object in oh, the exhibition? My favourite object is definitely Codex Amiatinus. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was. Everybody told me it was would be impossible to to borrow it. So, seeing it arrive last week during the installation of the exhibition was it was quite an emotional moment, really. And uh, yeah, I really hope that uh, visitors to the exhibition will enjoy seeing it and encountering this great treasure of Anglo-Saxon England. And was there anything that you really wanted to get in the exhibition that you were unable to secure? Or is there anything, you know, in, our, in a dream world that would have, that would have uh, made it um, complete? Um, well, I think we have drawn together <laughs> an amazing array of um, uh, treasures from from you know, six centuries of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. I mean, obviously, we weren't able to borrow the Rothwell Cross, which is a um, more than five-metre high um, stone cross which has inscriptions um, in runic uh, characters um, of extracts of the, the Dream of the Rude poem. So in... Uh, but it is, you know in situ in a in a church the church of rather in Dumfrieshire. so what we have done is create a replica of that um cross which is uh, i think an incredibly dramatic centerpiece um and it is actually almost right in the middle of the exhibition but it's a centerpiece of the the very large section that we have on the the language and literature of the anglo-saxons Yes, and it does indeed look amazing. Claire, thank you. Um, the exhibition uh, is open now and uh, finishes on the 19th of February. Tickets are available from the British Library website, bl.uk, and there are lots of special events going on as well, which you will find on that website too. Um, so do go and have a look. Thank you, Claire. Thank you. That was Claire Bray. Anglo-Saxon Kingdoms, Art, Word, War, runs at the British Library until the 19th of February next year and it's best to book tickets in advance. You can find out further details at bl.uk. And for more on the Anglo-Saxons, and our roundup of this particular exhibition, visit historyextra.com. Meanwhile, you can read an article about the Anglo-Saxons, written by Michael Wood, in the November issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Look out for it in all good retailers and our many digital formats. And we've now come to the end of today's episode, but we will be back in a few days' time with more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? 
You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.